Father, we're thankful for your bringing us together again this morning. Thank you for the good word and this we heard already, and, and Lord, the opportunity to come together and to confess our sins and to worship you and to pray. We're thankful, Lord, that you give us this every week and, and built it into the very rhythm of our lives. And so now, Lord, as we plunge into Habakkuk, I pray that you'll give the teacher wisdom and clarity and those who are here to listen, that you'll open their hearts and minds, all of our hearts and minds, Lord. And we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Come on in. Hey, Jim. My fellow baseball coach from this year. Um, Okay, so we're in Habakkuk today. Or Habakkuk, if you prefer. Um, as I was thinking about Habakkuk and preparing for this morning, I've been thinking about it throughout the week, actually. Um, I, it dawns on me again with the Minor Prophets, and I think Habakkuk is especially the case, that the Bible really will not allow us, in a, in a way that I think borders on the tyrannical, that the Bible will not allow us to remain with surface accounts of matters pertaining to the world or our faith. In other words, the sort of syrupy, a sentimental, uh, what we might call bumper sticker Christianity, um, it, it just won't be allowed to remain. Because the prophets, and, and, I'm, and you'll see in Habakkuk, we're going to spend three small chapters, but poignantly powerful, that Habakkuk and the prophets force us to think about ultimate matters in deep ways. Um, Listen to Habakkuk here, chapter 1. The oracle of God which Habakkuk the prophet saw, which is an interesting way of... uh, Hello. (laughs) um, I know that sound. Um, The oracle of God which Habakkuk the prophet saw, that's a funny way of putting the words together, an oracle which he saw. But then it gets right into it. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? How long shall I cry to you violence? Here's here's your Hebrew word for the morning. It might make the news more interesting. Violence in Hebrew is Hamas, right? Or cry to thee Hamas, or violence, and you will not save. Why dost thou make me see wrongs and look upon trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. I mean, so what is it the prophet, right out of the gate, cries out in direct confrontation with God, and he says, how long am I going to pray and you're not going to hear? No prophet, says Theodore Hebert, confronts the issues of a just God and an unjust world in the direct and fruitful ways that Habakkuk does. And what is the book? The book in and of itself is presented as this live debate between the prophet and between God. I mean, so this is what's going on in Habakkuk. Habakkuk is a tennis match verbally between God and the prophet. And and, and I I don't know where you are on your life in these things spiritually, but... um, But the Bible allows for this in ways that, at least to my mind, strike me immediately as uncomfortable. If you get into the Psalms, for example, there are lament Psalms left and right. Matter of fact, if we were to quantify the Psalms and put them on some sort of grid on the basis of their genre, the kind of Psalm, 
there's more lament psalms, complaining psalms, than any other kind of psalm. Which I think shows this, this instinct in God's relationship with His people that He allows, that He authorizes for us to talk to Him in ways that are risky. And if you remember that scene in a great movie, I just haven't seen it in a while, but Robert Duvall and the Apostle. Have you seen this movie? I mean, here's Duvall, this um, charismatic preacher um, who's a, a, a bit of a rake, actually. And, and you see him, I remember the scene where he's up in his room and he's just yelling and angry and cantankerous and the camera comes in and you realize he's, he's talking to God, right? I mean, this isn't a conversation with anyone else. It's between the apostle, this, this preacher, and, and God. We see it in Jeremiah. Jeremiah says very straightforwardly to God, you deceived me, you overtook me, which is really a term that if you press it a little bit, it's even more uncomfortable. You took advantage of me. Um, and so th- this is what this. And here comes Habakkuk, in line with these righteous sufferers, with these people, the people of God, who engage the reality of the world around them, and they see the reality of the world around them, and they recognize something's not adding up. I think one could say, frankly, maybe this is too reductionistic. But I think one could say with Habakkuk and the majority of the wisdom literature in the Old Testament that the existential crisis that the Old Testament puts before us again and again and again is what are you going to do when your faith and what you confess to believe comes into direct conflict with what you are experiencing and seeing in the world around you? Again, the Bible will not allow you to get off the hook, it's going to force you to look at that situation very straightforwardly and resolve in your own heart and mind, well, what's it going to be? When I look at the world around me and when I see going on, when I flip on the news and I hear about another village and a mountain in Mosul or something like that and, and it just seems incompatible with my understanding of what I believe, we confessed it this morning, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth. You and I said that together as a corporate confession of what we believe. We believe that God the Father Almighty is the Maker of heaven and earth. That means He is sovereignly and providentially in control of all things, overseeing all things. Nothing catches God by surprise. There's never a time when God says, oh, I didn't know about that. There's never a time when God is twiddling His thumbs wondering what's going to happen next. It's not His character. And I think when people meet this notion of the sovereignty of God for the first time on the first pass, um, there's a sense in which it's majestic and powerful. There's a kind of uh, Christian triumphalism maybe that's attached to that. And, and rightly so. God is in control. He's in control of all things. But the second pass, I think, is the pass that Habakkuk is having right now. A recognition, okay, you are in control. I know who you are. You are God and there is no other. We're going to see that in Habakkuk 3. I mean, this massive view of God and His His control and His sovereignty and His lordship over all creation. I mean, Habakkuk is going to present that in one of the most beautiful ways in all of the Bible. So I know that's true. But when I look around me, what I see is Hamas. I see violence. I see suffering. I see things that don't comport with I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And it's caused 
cognitive dissonance for me. In other words, I can't sit easily to this. I don't have it worked out in my own mind in a way that I can move in a nice syllogism A, B equals C. I have A and I have B and I don't know what C means. I have no way to move to that. I'm stuck. I mean, this is... um, uh, Oh, this, this sounds pretentious, so forgive me. But I, I was um, watching football yesterday and had a book on my to-do list, a bucket list book that I've told myself for a while, read this, and I bought it a couple years ago. Have you, do you do this, right? You buy books, and then they just sit there and make you feel guilty for years. You know, it's like, <laughs> no, I've got a whole shelf filled of books like that. Well, one of them for me was um, uh, Boethius, 5th century, his Consolation of Philosophy. I know that sounds really... It's, I, please don't excise that. It's boring, it's weird, but I, I had that by me. And, and here's Boethius, who some say um, is the progenitor of Thomas Aquinas, um, a great philosopher, a great theologian who argued for the Trinity in a way that reaches into Platonic and Aristotelian thought in deep and, and thoughtful ways. He's a philosopher. Well, this is a kind of Socratic thing where Boethius is about to die, and he's on his deathbed, and he writes this, or, or, or he's actually in prison. And he writes this consolation of philosophy. And I was reading it to my poor wife, border to tears. But I said, you've got to hear this. I mean, Boethius in the first chapter says, I, I, um, I was in despair, just living in my tears, wondering why I've lived of the life that I've lived. And then I had a vision of this woman, and she's beautiful. Her hair um, was white, and her head seemed to be right at eye level with me. But then at the same time, it seemed to be all the way up into the heavens. I couldn't... And I looked at her, her back and she had, a, had a, a, a garment on with the letter pi at the bottom and the theta at the top, which means philosophy at the bottom and theology at the top. That's the way in which the latter moved from the bottom to the top. And she came to me and she asked me, and this is all in book one, why are you in despair? And do you want to know why Boethius was in despair? For the same, this is kind of a strange providence for me preparing for today, for the same reasons Habakkuk is in despair. Because I've tried to follow the path of wisdom you, Lady Philosophy, I've tried to follow the path of walking in the light of the Gospel, but I look around me and I see no one in political leadership who's living in that way. And I don't see anyone who's thinking according to these principles. And our world is a mess. And this is how Lady Philosophy ends book one of the Consolation. She looks at Boethius and she says, Do you believe that God is in control? Do you believe that God is in control of all things? Yes, I do. Well, then why are you in despair? And then you go into book two. It's, uh, it's a challenge. In other words, this is a, to, to my mind, this is, this is meat and potatoes Christianity. Right? It's not summer camp Christianity. This is meat and potatoes stuff. I mean, you heard the story this morning from Andrew. I didn't know that story about Andrew and his, his oldest daughter. It's those kind of moments right, where life is beginning to in, either implode or your eyes are open to the reality of the world around you and things just aren't adding up. I cry out to you violence. And this is what goes on in the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk raises a complaint in the first chapter. And he says to the Lord, you know, um, every, the, your people are driven by political principles that have nothing to do with your law. They're, they're nothing to do with righteousness. Nothing to do with justice. And then God responds, right? Here's the second part. Um, he responds in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astonished. 
For I'm doing a work in your days. This is, he, this is God speaking back. I'm doing a work in your days that you wouldn't believe if you were told. For I'm rousing the Chaldeans. Who are the Chaldeans? The Babylonians. They avoided the Assyrians, but now the Babylonians. I'm arousing them, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize inhabitations of their own. They're going down. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle. And they all come for violence too. And so here's the answer. Well, you're right. And by the way, Habakkuk, I've taken notice as well of the violence and the Hamas that you see among your people. And I'm rousing up the Chaldeans to come in and be my instrument and my means to deal with that in an act of judgment. And do you know what Habakkuk says in return? That's not quite what I had in mind. <laughs> and this is what he says, right? This is this, how does the prophet respond to God's answer? With another complaint. Verse 12, are you from, not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? Um, oh, this is fascinating here. I didn't know that, that I, I didn't look, this is, I'm reading from the NRSV. We shall not die. I don't know what Bibles you have. I imagine the ESV says, is that what you have? I imagine the ESV says something like, you will not die, or you do not die. Does it not say that? We shall not die. Oh, it says we shall not die. Um, o Lord, thou hast ordained them as a judgment. This is a fascinating verse. Um, uh, uh, within the Jewish tradition, I was talking to someone about this before. Within the Jewish tradition, they see this as an emendation of what was probably originally there, which is, you will not die, saying that to the Lord, and that the scribes didn't like that, and they trying to fiddle with it. I like, I think the reading here we need to stick with. Let, let us, instead of saying, we will not die, I think maybe a better translation here would be, let us not die. This is the response that God's, Statement about, I'm bringing the Chaldeans to take care of the Hamas by bringing their own Hamas. And then here um, uh, Habakkuk says, O Lord, don't let us die. O Lord, you have ordained them as judgment. O thou, O rock, hast established them for chastisement. Your eyes are pure than to behold evil. You cannot look on wrong. Why do thou look on faithless men and are silent when the wicked swallows them up? The man more righteous than he Listen to that powerful verse fourteen. You make men like the fish of the sea. Verse fifteen. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his neck. He get net. He gathers them in his zina, and he rejoices and exults. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net. He burns incense to his zina, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. I mean, this is he said. This is how people are. You know, they, they, they get the bounty and the blessing from you and then they start sacrificing and worshiping their net. All right. They go fishing and they catch a whole bunch of fish and they start worshiping their fly rod. Right? I mean, this is the problem. So here is what Habakkuk responds. Lord, don't, don't send the Chaldeans to bring judgment when they themselves are such wicked and abominable people. There's no response to that, by the way. And frankly, we know in time that guess who does come? The Babylonians. So here's what I think, and a lot of scholars agree with this, is the pinnacle of the book, chapter 2, verse 1. I will take my stand to watch. I'm going to station myself on the tower. I'm going to look forth to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. So here, here it is. I, we've gone back and forth two rounds with God. And now I'm going to stand on the tower and I'm going to wait patiently to hear how I'm going to answer this complaint. 
And the Lord said to me, Write the vision. Boy, books can be written on that. Write the vision. Put it down. Make it plain upon tablets so that he may run who reads it. In other words, I think um, the Lord is saying here, this word that I'm about to give you, Habakkuk, needs to be written down in a way that it can be presented again and again to future generations. I would call this what the, the whole notion of the canon's intentionality to be a living word for future generations. Write it down. Write this down on a tablet. Let it be a living monument to my word to you. Here's my response. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. If the promise that I'm giving you seems slow, this is going to get at the heart of the next verse, so keep this up here. If it seems slow, if the answer is not coming to you in a timely fashion, if I'm not working out my promises according to your own time frame, wait for it. All of those hard words. Wait for it, for it surely will come. Verse 4. Here's a verse we all know. Behold, he whose soul is not upright in him shall fail, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Okay. Habakkuk 2.4. That's a big verse right there. Matter of fact, um, Habakkuk continues to play a pretty important role in the history of interpretation in the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Qumran. Um, you found all kinds of, which by the way is the most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century. No questions. The discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, of these, these, uh, these texts from the Judean de- desert, fascinating. They found biblical texts. They found texts that were composed there in the community at Qumran. And they found another kind of text which are called the Pesharim, or commentaries on biblical books. And one of the whole commentaries that we have is the Pesharim on Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a book that had a pretty significant place in the religious life of this Qumran community. And we can see from Paul in Romans chapter 1, it had a pretty significant place for Paul too. The righteousness of God has been revealed from faith to faith, and the just shall live by faith. I mean, Romans 1, 16 and 17, that's at the heart of the Reformation. That's at the heart of Paul's theology. This notion that the just will live, the righteous will live by faith. But we have to step back here a little bit. Because this is um, a challenging interpretive issue. A couple of things. Number one, the term here for faith really does, from a Hebrew standpoint, really does bleed very much into faithfulness. I think you just got to be honest about that. So this notion of faith as it relates to faithfulness or constancy or loyalty, these two terms are organically related to one another. Um, in fact, one often hears that God is described as being filled with chesed and aman. Um, loving kindness and faithfulness. And a way of reading that I think probably that does justice to the language is to read that faithful part as an adverb for the loving kindness. He shows loving kindness in a constant way. He shows loving kindness in a faithful way, in a durative way, in a way in which you can hold on to. So here the prophet says, in the midst of this notion of waiting and hoping and trusting that the just, the righteous ones are those that live by faith slash faithfulness. Well, that raises questions, doesn't it? 
Lots of theological and interesting questions. Maybe we'll pursue this a little bit if we have time for Q&A. But one of the things that strikes me is there's, a, I think, a bad interpretive road to go down. And that is to view this faithfulness here as a simple keeping of the Torah, of the law. I'm not sure that's what the prophet is getting at. I think within this context here, and especially the way in which Paul picks it up, faith or faithfulness is organically linked to hope. It's organically linked to hope. Let me read you a couple quotes from some folks here. Well, actually, it's not a couple. It's a, I'm quoting me. Uh, uh, a, a constancy, faith and faithfulness, a constancy in the reliance on the righteousness and salvation of the Lord. Faith here mingles with faithfulness as understood within a particular frame. Hope in the God of salvation and in His faithfulness, even if it tarries. Write it down. Put it on a tablet. This is where context helps interpretively. And let the people know that my promises will come, even if it seems to tarry. Wait. And that's the righteous one living by faith is the righteous one living in the hope and the assurance and the constancy that God's promise to be God for us, that God's salvific promises for us are assured and true, even if we have to wait. Even if we turn on the TV and all we see is Hamas. Even if we look in our own bedrooms and all we see is Hamas. There's a challenge here to wait and to hope in the constancy of God's own faithfulness and righteousness and salvation for His people. In other words, faith and faithfulness in Habakkuk 2.4 is not a faith that turns in on itself. It's a faith that sits up on top of the tower and watches out to see when God will act. That's, that's helped, this has helped me enormously to make sense out of a phrase in Paul that's weird. By the way, Paul, you know, goodness... Even Peter, it's a good company when the Apostle Peter says, if you read any, I'm doing a paraphrase here, but if you read any of Paul's letters, they're hard. <laughs> and Peter says that in Second Peter. Those, those letters of Paul are hard to understand. Well, can we look at Romans 8 together? I want to look at this. Because I think Romans 8, 18 through 27 is a, about as good a commentary on Habakkuk 2 as we'll find. Here it is here. I consider... Now think about this in relationship to Habakkuk. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The Hamas that we experience now, when brought into conversation, or when brought into the proper frame, onto the same radar screen with the glory that will come in the future, it's not really even to be compared. It pales in comparison. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Boy, that we could stop on that. But the notion, I was reading about this of Calvin this week. Calvin, well, this, this might be a little stunner to you, but Calvin did not view God's engagement with humanity primarily with redemption as its end. Redemption was a means to bring us back to the original intention of creation itself. And that is so that we could be redeemed to live into the glory of God, into the very life of God. 
So redemption and creation. Creation is the, is the place where we... This is why all this new creation language. We're redeemed, not just an end unto itself, but to bring us back into that fellowship with God, that created fellowship with God, to live into His glory. That's one of the reasons why these places like here in Romans 8 and Colossians 1 talk about the atonement and talk about salvation in cosmic terms. It's not just about the individual. The whole world waits for it. Mars waits for it. I don't know how to put it. Jupiter waits for it. The earth and the tides and the seasons, they wait for this, for the consummation, so that creation will go back to its original Edenic state with Jesus as its Lord and peace as its rule. So this creation is yearning for this. For the creation was subjected to futility. I'll kind of pass over here. We know that the whole creation has been groaning and travail together. The creation itself groans. Um, And not only the creation, but we too groan who had the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly. Habakkuk is a groaning prophet. Paul is a groaning apostle. We are groaning believers. We groan inwardly as we, here's the operative word, wait for adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. And here's the verse, verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. I'm going to go out on a limb here and get a little geeky with you. I actually think this should be read this way. For by hope, we are saved. And I don't, I'd actually maybe take a guillotine for that one. For by hope, we are saved. That's Habakkuk 2 4. It's by hope that we are saved. What hope? A faithfulness and a faith and a belief that God's redemption of the whole world, which includes ourselves because of the finished and complete work of His Son, will happen even while we wait. If it tarries, Habakkuk says, wait. What a strange thing for Paul to say we are saved by hope. But for Paul, honestly, I I genuinely believe this. Hope and faith are flip sides of the same coin. To believe and to hope and the salvific promises of God, and to be assured that they will come to pass even when we have to tarry and we have to wait. He goes on to say, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Well, this is how Habakkuk ends. Chapter 2 is a statement about the coming judgment of God against the Chaldeans too. In other words, this is is an indirect response to to Habakkuk to say, you're right, the Chaldeans are unrighteous and I'll deal with them too. And then you come to chapter 3. I don't have the time to read it, but for homework this week, read us this. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to the Shigionot. What does that mean? According to some musical instrument. Um, The electric guitar, maybe. I don't know. And he says, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and thy work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, renew it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. If we, I think if we were to make a t-shirt for, the, for, for our study in the Minor Prophets, the slogan would be right there. In wrath, remember, remember mercy. 
Well, I won't read the rest of it, but it shows the power and the beauty and the glory of God. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from His hands. There He veiled His power. I mean, you, you just can't walk away from Habakkuk chapter 3 without an enormous view of God and God's identity. And listen to how Habakkuk ends. I think Habakkuk ends in chapter 3, verse 17, embodying what 2.4 calls for. The just, the righteous ones live by faith. They live by hope. They live by the trust that God will perform His salvific acts even if we have to wait. And then here Habakkuk at the end of the book brings it and says, and this is mine now. It's not just in my mind. This is mine. I'm, I'm owning this. Though the fig tree do not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines. Though the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like hinds feet. He makes me tread upon high places. The end. That's powerful. Habakkuk packs a lot in three little chapters. And this is how Habakkuk ends. By the way, just like Job, this is the hard news. This is, I guess, the meat and potato part. Without any resolution, necessarily, of the current exigencies and crises. What he has, again, like Psalm 73, is a shift of vision. I know who you are. And even if I have to wait and tarry, even if I don't see it right now, I will hope. I will have faith. I will say when I stand by the cemetery, I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come, even though in that moment it's so hard to believe. Though the fig tree doesn't give me any more figs, though everything that I rely on goes to pot, I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'm going to hope. I'm going to believe. And here's the great news, I think, of the gospel for all of us. It's the news that even when our own belief gets shaky, this is a great, I think, truth from the Reformation tradition. Even when our own belief and hope gets shaky, we can know that Jesus' belief and hope doesn't get shaky. Okay, I haven't taken questions in a while. Let's do it. What do you want to bat, do you want to bat around? Yes, ma'am. Uh, I think my uh, some of these haunting pictures for example that I've seen in the journal recently you know of empty rooms and it's it's haunting I think some of the accounts that we've read we have some missionaries from um, that are connected to Beeson in some way who were missionaries in northern Iraq to the Kurdish folks and some of these first-hand accounts of what has happened to mothers and children and who are Christians under, under Isis has um, 
I, I'm not sure why, because I know these things go around on the world all around us, but uh, Sudan, the Congo, I mean, th- these kind of things happen all the time, but something about this has been so visceral for me. Um, it's Hamas that we're seeing in ways that are terrifying um, and haunting. Um, I, I don't, uh, just to kind of you know, engage you here, I don't think Habakkuk asks any of us to jettison that. See, that's what I love about these books. They allow that kind of tension that you feel, that I feel, looking at the world around us. It's not a just think happy thoughts kind of Christianity. It's not that. Just be happy. Be happy. You know, it's uh, allow the, the reality of that to be absorbed and let it force you to a place of dependence beyond something that, that you can even conceive or even come, come to complete terms with. Now, faith is faith because it is not seen. I mean, that, that's the thing. And it doesn't necessarily mean that that comes along with it, uh, uh, to my mind at least, maybe you, some of you may disagree, all the time, warm and fuzzies. I mean, what, I, what I sense with Habakkuk is Jacob and God at Penuel wrestling through the night. Right? I mean, there's this. It's, it's, and, and, and Jacob's got a limp. Habakkuk's got a limp. We have limps going through this. The brokenness of our world does not leave us unscathed, but I think it forces us to a position, really, of maturity, really <laughs> spiritual maturity, to say, "I need you to help me believe." I mean, what a wonderful statement. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. I think we live in that. Um, and I've, I'm, you know, the, my Trinitarian instincts grab me deeply here, um, where I just find great hope in the fact that Jesus does believe. Um, and, and He is assured of, of the final outcome. Yeah. Any other questions? Thank you for sharing that. I think, I think we feel that in our world. Um, and probably feel more uncomfortable, frankly. Maybe this is, shows my own chronological snobbery, but I think we feel quite uncomfortable right now with what's going on around the world, and, and, and rightly so. But it would be such a blessing to see on the network news this witness to God. Yeah. And to Jesus yeah. Christ. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it did remind me, some of this has reminded me of... Um, in reading the biography on John Calvin that I read a couple of years ago, uh, you know, the plague broke out. And what about these ministers? You know how many ministers died during the plague by Catholic priests by giving last rites to these people who were dying and, and knew the risks? It's, it's, a, it's an incredible thing, actually, to think about how that illustration from the history of the church, it's, we're seeing some of that now with some of these people who are willing to put themselves in harm's way. Um, it's, 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 it's weighty. Yeah. It's not our natural instinct. We want to self protect. Yes. The worse we see things getting, we want to self protect. It's not what the gospel is. Yeah. And I need help with that. I mean, again, you know, this is the, we, we trust the, the work of the Lord to open our hearts to believe that that's true. Because that's my instinct as well. Or maybe another instinct is um, we look back on past suffering, right? And think, you know, I did that. That was hard. I don't want to do that again. I did that. Um, but I went to school and I graduated and now let's live life, right? Um, and it, it, life's too cyclical for that. I mean, think about, we tend to think of time chronologically as it moves linearly forward. 
But the Bible presents time in a more cyclical way, doesn't it? The seven-day pattern that repeats itself, going back and back and back. That has a lot to do with the way in which Jesus is present in the Old Testament. But the way in which time goes back and back and back on itself, that's our lives. We go back and back and back. And it's... It's, um, it's, I wish it was onward and forward, <laughs> right? Um, but it's often two steps forward, three steps back. Yeah. Mark, <clears throat> Jesus wept his tragedy, human tragedy, and uh, he felt the same kind of pain that we felt. He had difficulty with the disciples believing. He dealt with that. But always he still professed the unity with God. So. Yeah. Another example of how he chose to deal with these things. That's a that's a great point, Ed. And I I think you know we I tend to want philosophical answers to these problems that can outlay them. And modernity has presented these problems to us in ways um, that are quite poignant. Um, but with Boethius, fourth century, what I was talking about. I mean, th- these aren't new problems. And the Bible just doesn't always give us a philosophical answer to put all the loose ends intellectually together or rationally together. What it does give us is hope and faith. And the other thing that I believe that it gives us um, is the promise that Jesus' identity, where do you find him? He tends to be present at suffering. But he's there in it. And that, that to me, is a great source of comfort as well. That We're not talking about the God, the abstracted God um, up there. We're talking about the Jesus who's at the grave, weeping with the people involved and intimately connected to their suffering. That's significant to my mind. So, Lord, seal these things on our hearts. Bless my friends here. I pray that you will lift our hearts. Let us be hopeful and, and Lord, even joyful. Um, to know that the worst that life will bring us, and for some of my friends here, they face the worst that life can bring them, that, Lord, even if we have to tarry, even if we have to wait, we can be assured that Your promises to us in Jesus will hold fast forever. And when we think about that, our current sufferings compare to the future glory that we have in You, Jesus. They don't even compare. Help us to believe and help our unbelief. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.